0: Today we start a new series, we're going to be looking at the section in the book of Hebrews from chapter 4 verse 14 all the way through the end of chapter 7. We're going to spend four weeks in a series that I've entitled, Christ Our Mediator. We're going to look at Christ Our Mediator from four angles. One is Christ Our Great High Priest. And then Christ our teacher, and then Christ our king, and then Christ our servant. Christ our high priest, our teacher, our king, and our servant. And this morning, we'll begin with the first of those four messages Christ our great high priest. The portion of Text that I would like to direct your attention to this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 down through chapter 5 and verse 10. And in this, I would like to answer three questions this morning. Three questions regarding Christ, our great high priest, Christ, our mediator. And that is, what do we have? Why does it matter? And how is that possible? When we look to Him, I'm going to ask the questions, what do we have, why does it matter, and how is it possible? Let's begin by answering that first question from verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4. What do we have? You see, the author begins by reminding us that since then, we have something. We have something. We we possess something. How rich a treasure we possess What is that? Namely, it is that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and therefore let us hold fast our confession. Now it is customary in the preaching of a sermon to have an introduction. Generally speaking, when you address an audience, it is helpful for you to say something at the beginning so that they know that the sermon has started. Now, this is something that I've had to learn over the years because I typically didn't like to waste time with the introduction. I just like to begin the exposition. And during the seminary training that I received, we had a class on preaching. And so you would actually have to preach sermons and your classmates would evaluate you and the teacher would evaluate you. And one of the professors that I had during this excruciating class where you were critiqued in terms of your preaching uh, was... Uh, man who had become a mentor and a friend of mine named Alex Montoya, and at the end of my sermon, he gave me some feedback, and he said this to me, and this is why seminary is such an encouraging time, I believe his first words were, um, do you know what was wrong with that? <laughs> to which I, I responded, um, <laughs> somewhat sarcastically in my own mind. Well, if I did, I wouldn't have done it that way. But I I responded instead with this really well-thought-through response, which was something along the lines of, uh, no. (laughs) He said, the problem with that sermon is that it's like a house without a porch. Uh, Now, again, at this point, I'm confused. I'm trying to figure out what the analogy is. A house without a porch? Yeah, he says, you got like, your sermons are like a house without a porch. I said, well, I, I'm sorry, could you explain that a little bit more? He says, yeah, you know, it's like you've got this front door to the house, but there's nothing leading up to it. You, you just expect people to open the door and just sort of jump right in without any kind of lead in. Well, so here's the lead in, everybody. Here's the steps leading up to the text. This is what I'm doing. This is what the author is doing. He is saying, you need to remember something, folks. There is something that is going on here in terms of what is being revealed to you about Christ Himself. And he does that not by giving you a clever story at the beginning, not, not a funny joke. He does that by actually applying everything. He he introduces the sermon by giving the application. And the application in this particular case is by referring to something that he's referred to earlier in the chapter. His idea of application as he opens up this section is not some sort of spiritual goal challenge. He doesn't end the exposition by saying, now here's the list of things you need to do. For some people, that's what application means. Oh, pastor, make sure there's some application there. What they mean is, oh, pastor, make sure you tell me what to do at the end of the sermon. I should have a list, a challenge. It's not what the author does here. The author doesn't give a moral scorecard either. His idea of application is not to cause you to measure yourself against some kind of standard and go away from here, either built up and proud because of how well you're doing or discouraged because of how far you've fallen. Instead, his application is simply this, and it's an invitation. His application is an invitation. And his invitation is this, to number one, confess your faith, and number two, approach your Savior. That's it. that's how you apply this text of Scripture, frankly, that's how you should apply, apply every text of Scripture that highlights the gospel. Confess your faith and approach your Savior. It's meant to offset the concerns that would naturally arise from the previous section, which talked about the fact that God's Word is essentially set against us. That the word is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is this proclamation of judgment against those who have not believed the gospel. And in response to this very vivid imagery of the sword of the word of God essentially being laid at the base of your throat, the way that a sacrifice was about to be killed, the author says, "...but be of good courage." because it is not hopeless. He says, be of good courage, Christian, because you are not condemned. You have a great high priest, and that great high priest has already passed through the heavens. That great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God, and therefore, your first application is to hold fast your confession. Now, we would say in a Protestant church like ours that we don't have any priests. In fact, we would say at most that we are a priesthood of believers. Uh, some of our friends that are in different denominations or, or maybe some people you know that are in other religions, they go and they gather together and they have a priest. They have somebody that would go to God on their behalf. Uh, they have somebody who is in effect, more important than they are and has a better relationship with God than than they do, and God has placed them, in a sense, in between them and God. And one of the truths of the Reformation, one of the glories of Reformed theology, is that we recovered the priesthood of the believer, that we are invited to go to God on our own, and we don't need anybody to bring us there. And yet, this text reminds us that If we were to really understand this fully, we would have to confess that we do have a priest. But in this case, it's a priest who is the very high priest, Christ himself. And so if someone were to ask you, do you have any priests at your church? You should say, well, no, we have pastors. But you can say, then again, we do have one priest, the one great high priest, Jesus Christ who has ascended, the very Son of God, the one that therefore allows us to come to him and hold this confession. The word let us, please notice that in verse 14. It's what he says here in verse 1 as well of chapter 4. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. And then again, he says it in verse 11, let us therefore strive and the fearing and the striving is answered here in the confessing, in the confessing that the one whom we fear is Christ himself, the, the rest into, that we're striving to get into is the, the rest provided by him. In fact, he is a perfect holy high priest, greater and better than any. He ascended to implement all that he has accomplished in his perfect life. He was sent to achieve something on behalf of fallen humanity. And he succeeded. And that part of the work is finished. But it's interesting to see the ongoing application here of the work. Because the ongoing application is happening in glory. Yes, it is finished. And yet it continues. The actual work of redemption is finished. The price has been paid. But the ongoing work of intercession... The ongoing work of the advocacy of Christ on our behalf continues. This is what we confess. The steady progression and procession of people who are now being sanctified, as we see in Hebrews 8, being set apart as they go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, this kingdom that is ruled by the resurrected Son of glory. This is what we're thinking about. It means the throne of heaven is a throne of grace for us. Brothers and sisters, you approach a throne of grace. Please be aware of that this morning. Be aware of that if you are carrying the burden of unrepentant sin. If you know for a fact that you are living in flagrant, deliberate, unrepentant sin. You know that you have, as it were, returned to the vomit of your previous ways, or you realize that you have never yet truly believed the gospel. Let me encourage you this morning that the throne of God is a throne of grace. But I would also say, brothers and sisters, for those of you who wouldn't look to your life and say, well, there's some example of of, of unrepentant sin that I know I'm harboring, The fact is, you are still in a perpetual state of sinning, and that throne is a throne of grace for you as well. It is not a throne of grace, though, for everybody. The devil and his angels approach a throne of wrath. The unbeliever approaches a throne of judgment. The hypocrite approaches a throne of wrath. And so, the repentant one finds grace. The Christian finds grace. Now, please notice that it is Christ that is said here to be all the way through the heavens. If you go back to Luke 24, beginning in verse 50, there is the story of the ascension. That Christ goes with some of his disciples out to a place and he says to them, I'm going to bless you now. And he does so maybe kind of in the way that the, the Aaronic breast blessing was. He, he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. And as he is blessing them, he is taken up into glory. It is in that glory where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It is in that glory that Stephen, the day when he is being stoned for his profession of the gospel, looks up and sees Christ, not only seated at the right hand of the Father, but in this particular case, standing, waiting to receive him as the very life begins to ebb out of him as he is stoned to death for proclaiming the gospel. You see, it is that Christ who had ascended back to that place of absolute glory and honor and rule at the right hand of the Father. Here he is, truly God, truly man. And in the ascension, the manhood of the Son of Man comes to the Godhead just as the Godhead came down to manhood in the Incarnation. You see, it is the full completion of this. As God, God sends God to become man in the incarnation, and then as the God-man, man returns to heaven. And he is right now in that corporeal, physical, bodily, glorified, resurrected form, interceding for us, appealing his own blood and finished work for us, and being our advocate with the Father. This is what sends the people back after that moment of ascension with great joy to spread the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, notice in the text, references his humanity, the Son of God, his deity, and therefore we hold fast to that confession. You see, all the early creeds, the Creed of Nicaea, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed all of them specify that what you must understand and believe is that Christ rose from the dead, yes, but that he also ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in our modern context, we seem to have drawn the separation, as it were, between the resurrection and the ascension, and we have highlighted the resurrection, and rightfully so, and Easter is a wonderful time, but we have gotten rid of the other celebration that the early church used to have 40 days later, and that was Ascension Sunday. And in some ways, the, the resurrection seems like an isolated event. Christ was crucified, Christ was buried, Christ rose from the dead, end of story. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, the real culmination of this incarnation, of his coming to earth, because of his love for us, that he might redeem to himself a people, is that he rose from the dead and then revealed himself, to people over and over again in his glorified, resurrected form, and then went back up to glory in that physical form. And he says, one day I am going to return the same way. And that's what the angel declared. They're not saying he's going to return the same way, floating in a cloud on the way down. What he means is that he's going to come back in the same way, in the same bodily, physical form. This is what we have to look forward to, and this is what the resurrection and the ascension mean. And so based on his ascension and his intercession, we should be even more committed to that confession of faith. Why? Listen to this. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, this is an astonishing statement. The author is telling us that even though Christ never sinned, he can sympathize with us. Even though he never sinned, he can sympathize with everything that we're going through. He knows the sin better than we even know it. And he knows it better than us, even though he never sinned. How can this be? The reality is he is not surprised by your temptation. Because in his human flesh, he was able to experience temptation the way that you and I do. He knew it the way that you and I do. You see, he took on human flesh, and that word flesh is very important. It's the word sarks. It doesn't just mean body. It means the physical flesh, the fallen, cursed flesh. That's what he took on. He didn't take on sort of a sanitized version of the flesh. He didn't take on a non-fallen flesh. He took on the same kind of flesh that you and I have, susceptible to hunger, to thirst, to fatigue, to pain, to temptation, and he took it on and he bore it. And all the temptations that were cast at him were felt the same way they are felt by you and I. And in fact, he felt them to an extreme. You see, because of his deity, he was not able to sin. He wasn't just able not to sin, he was not able to sin. And so therefore, the very extremes of all that the devil could throw at him were experienced and there was no breaking point. He knows temptation better than you and I do. The reason why he is such a merciful high priest is that when we come to him with the consequences of our temptation, he can sympathize and say, child, I understand. I also understand that you have a breaking point. I also understand that you are weak In fact, if I were to describe it to you this way, to be complete, I would say it like this. He is not at all surprised by your temptation, but beloved, you would be astonished at his. You would be astonished if you were to realize the degree to which he was tempted. Because he was able to be tempted with temptations that you could never be tempted with. Because you couldn't survive the temptation. He, because he could not sin, was taken to the very infinite extreme of all temptation that could be inflicted upon anybody, and he did it without sin. And so he receives you, and he is not ashamed of you because of your sin. He welcomes you. He welcomes you in your spirit of repentance. He welcomes you as you bring to him the consequences of your failures. He says to you, yes, you have sinned, Yes, you acknowledge it. Yes, you are deserving of judgment. But you are here in my presence to be reminded of my righteousness that covers you. Therefore, go and sin no more. You see, your daily interaction with this merciful high priest is one of you coming to him, bearing your sin, bearing your shame, only to be reminded that he has borne your sin and borne your shame. And yes, it is absolutely appropriate to go with a sense of brokenness and brokenheartedness about the continual repetitive failures. And yet at the same time, please notice, He does not judge you for your repetitive failure because in this flesh you are doomed to repetitive failure. The only thing that would separate you from Him in terms of your relationship is the refusal to go to Him with the failure. You see, He is not a father who when his son comes to him and acknowledges his weakness and his failure and his sin, is put off and ashamed and repulsed by him and rejects him. Far from it. He receives us the way any loving father would receive his own child who's come to him with a genuine heart of repentance and a desire to be forgiven and to have the relationship restored. So we confess this to strengthen our own understanding of who he is. That in his weakness, he can sympathize with us. And yet in his sinlessness, he can offer us something that is far greater than anything that we could possibly achieve. And so he continues in verse 16 with another application. Let us then, as a consequence of everything that we have just said, approach him with confidence. You can confidently draw near the throne of grace, Look, beloved, aren't you grateful that it's called the throne of grace? This is the definition of his throne. It is a throne where grace is dispensed. It's a throne where grace is found. And he says that you can draw near that throne of grace and expect to receive something. You receive mercy and you find grace to help in time of need. There's no greater application that you can give in a sermon than to tell people here's what you want to do. You want to do something? You want to have a task at the end of this message? It's simply this, boldly approach the throne of grace when you're in need. This is something that people were not able to do, especially under the old covenant. When you look at the the giving of the law, God says to Moses, I'm going to give you the law and I'm going to bring you up on the mountain, but nobody else is allowed to come on the mountain. Nobody else can touch the mountain. No animals can touch the mountain. If you approach in that particular context, the consequence was death. And here what we see is that in this new covenant relationship that Christ himself has said, I came in order to make a way so that anyone can approach not through another mediator, but through the one mediator. Isn't it interesting that when God spoke to the people directly from the mountain, they were so filled with fear that they begged Moses to be their mediator. They say, Moses, we don't want to hear from God directly. You go talk to God and tell us what he said. Because the very thought of of hearing from him is so distressing to us that we realize that we are going to disintegrate in his presence if this continues. Moses, you go. You see, religion has always been creating mediators in order to make us believe that somehow we have a simple, safe access to get all the things we want from God without the risk of really being in his presence. But he says, I want you to draw near. Draw near the throne of grace. Receive mercy, find grace." What do we have? We have a very clear application. Hold fast your confidence and approach the throne of grace. Number two, why does it matter? Look at verses one to four of chapter five. Why does it matter? This is very paradoxical, as it were. There is an inferior high priest that is mentioned here, a human one, that could deal gently with his people. This inferior high priest could also sympathize or empathize with his people with their temptation. But there is a unique way in which he is able to sympathize, and that is he is also a sinner. Uh, the initial context here is a reference to the, the human high priest. Every high priest, he says in verse 1, is chosen from among men. And he is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. And this particular man can deal gently with the ignorant because he is beset with weaknesses as well. And verse 3 says that this particular one is also offering sacrifices for his own sin because he is not sinless. Now into this image, the author crashes down the truth that Jesus Christ is also a sympathetic high priest, but there's one very strategic difference, and that is he is not a sinner. You see, the Mosaic law was given so that people would know how to relate rightly to God because they were constantly sinning. And yet even in that Mosaic law, I would add that there was grace In fact, there was a very interesting book written not too long ago called The Grace of the Law, and in it, the author, Ernest Cabin, says this, sin is the transgression of the law, the death of Christ is the satisfaction of the law, justification is the the verdict of the law, and sanctification is the believer's fulfillment of the law. And what the author is saying here is this, that sin transgresses a very holy law of God. And that necessitates that somebody come and answer that failure. The only one who could do that is Christ. And his death utterly satisfied the conditions of the law because he followed it perfectly. And the justification that he can then give to us is a verdict. It is a verdict that you too have obeyed the law perfectly. Not in your own strength, but in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And therefore, sanctification is the believer's fulfillment of the law. Once and for all, separated from darkness into light, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. You are now, in the eyes of God, a fulfiller of the law. And so, beloved, listen carefully. Your assurance comes from being made righteous, Not trying to be righteous you see once you know you are righteous then the way that works itself out in your life is a growing desire to manifest what you already are but if you think your righteousness comes as a consequence of how well you've done in life then you will always be doubting and you will always wrestle with assurance in fact, if you understand this correctly, it leads to a sincere and a humble confession of sin, knowing that this merciful high priest hears you, forgives you, and restores you. If you are in a situation where the disclosing of sin with a genuine heart of repentance leads to condemnation, then you're in a place where the gospel is missing. You see, genuine Confession of sin, and I don't mean regret over being caught. I don't mean making excuses for what you chose to do. I mean the genuine repentance that says, I have sinned, and I need a Savior. That context ought not to lead to condemnation if the gospel is present it leads to somebody turning your eyes then to the risen, ascended high priest who lives to make intercession for those who put their faith in Him. You see, He had to be one of us so that He could represent us. An animal couldn't do it. An angel couldn't do it. Only a man could do it. And He brings, notice, both these gifts, these thanksgiving offerings, and these sacrifices, these sin offerings, And the main advantage that a man has over anybody else is that he can empathize, he can sympathize. And the spotlight then on the Old Testament priesthood is here, but then we see how Jesus fulfills the role perfectly. All those other high priests would die off and have to be replaced. Later in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that there is this one high priest, which is Christ, and he never has to be replaced. He was chosen to serve just like they were. He was compassionate to sinners just like they were. He was called by God just like they were, but the main difference is that he offered up himself as the sacrifice that the others had to offer to make themselves worthy. You see, Christ was the ultimate perfect high priest. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sin, so he could lay himself down as the sacrifice for all who put their trust in him. So what do we have Merciful High Priest. Why does it matter? It matters because there is no human High Priest that could achieve what He did. And then finally, how is it possible? Look at verses five through ten. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a High Priest, but He was appointed by Him who said. And two Old Testament quotations from the Book of Psalms. The first one in Psalm two seven: "You are my Son; today I have begotten You." And also in another place, which is Psalm one ten four. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is the purpose of the author's point? He is saying that he's building an argument here for why Christ did not usurp this role of high priest. As a matter of fact, he was given and exalted to the position. And in order to prove it, he quotes these two Old Testament texts, which he's referred to earlier in the book. And he says of them that it applies to Christ. The first one, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is a rather challenging verse for some. Let us be clear what he is saying. He is not saying that at this moment Christ becomes the son of God. That somehow at the incarnation or at some other event during his earthly life, that he becomes the son. We don't teach what's called incarnational sonship. We don't teach that that he was somehow... Created at that moment the Son, nor do we teach that he has been positionally subordinate to the father we don 't believe that he is somehow a lesser being, somehow a lesser will. In fact, this particular false teaching has come under scrutiny lately, and i 'm thankful for it and there 's been some very good things written even in the last several years, clarifying a position that many evangelicals held for quite a while, and that was namely this eternal subordination of the second person of the Trinity. No, what he is saying here is that you are my son of the same essence. The begetting here, the acknowledging, is even a translation that isn't entirely accurate. You could say that today I have become your father. Uh, This was initially spoken of towards the king in Israel, and so obviously there's a reference here to the king of heaven, and he is saying to Jesus Christ that at this moment here, in this time, as you are looking at him as the high priest, he is the one who is of the very essence of God. The son of God means he is of the same essence, just like your children are of the same essence as you are. And the today here is not today you are and earlier you won't. He is saying that today, at this moment, I am declaring to everybody our relationship. Our relationship. And in the same way that in the Old Testament Psalm, the relationship, the special relationship of God to that earthly king, whether it be David or Solomon, designated them differently from the others, this is in the ultimate case, this is my son of my very essence, the one who can stand in the place of both God and man, placing his hands on both And not only is he this perfect son, but he is also, notice it, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Now, we're going to say a lot about Melchizedek in the coming weeks. So let me just briefly touch on it. We're just going to to briefly acknowledge it this morning. And then we'll tie up all the loose ends later. It's like when you're leaving for church in the morning and you're trying to get everybody in the car and they put their shoes on, but they don't tie up their laces. They just tie them up in the car. I don't know, it might be only my family that does this. It's kind of what we're doing with Melchizedek, okay? We get our shoes on, we get the car, tie them up next week, all right? Maybe next two weeks. But for now, let's just get our shoes on so that we understand what's going on here. Melchizedek is being referenced. I know that, I know many of you love Melchizedek. You probably spend multiple days during your quiet time just reading about Melchizedek, meditating about Melchizedek. He's definitely one of the lesser known characters in the Bible, obscure, lots of confusion around him. He shows up originally in Genesis 14, and it's Abraham who offers a sacrifice because this man shows up who is called Melchizedek, the king of Salem, ancient Jerusalem. And and the reason that the author is bringing him up is that he is a priest, Melchizedek is a priest and a king. But please notice, he was a priest before Aaron was born and before Aaron was named as the royal lion for the priests. So how can he be a priest? He was a priest because in God's economy, he had dealt directly with this king from Salem. Melchizedek was not a Levite, Melchizedek was not from the tribe that Aaron was from. And in the same way, Jesus is a priest, not because he comes from the line of Aaron, because he's not a Levite, but because he is an eternal priest. He comes from an entirely different line, from God's line, as it were. And so that is why the author makes this reference. So let's go back and make sure we understand it, and then we'll continue on. Christ did not exalt himself to this place of high priest of his own volition. Oh, no, he was identified as that by God the Father, who says, you are my son of my essence. And now in the presence of all, I am acknowledging that you are here at my will. And you will serve, not as a priest like Aaron, but as a priest like Melchizedek, a king priest. And as we know, not only was he the king priest, but he is the prophet king and priest. Now, he continues in verses 7 through 10 by saying this, that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. He had loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the answer to the mystery of of how can he sympathize is that through his own prayers and his tears and his suffering and his temptation, our Lord experienced everything a human being could experience. He became perfectly acquainted with your weakness. Brothers and sisters, there is both a wonderful encouragement here and a very stern warning. There's a very beautiful encouragement that he can relate to you in your weakness. And so when you come to him acknowledging your failure, acknowledging temptation and weakness, he can say, yes, son, yes, daughter, I can relate to that. Though I never sinned, I can relate to what you're going through and far more than you have ever been through ever could be through but there's also a very stern warning here because God will not be mocked. He won't let you mock Him. You're not allowed to mock His sympathy by ignoring the conviction, by cruising into His presence, as it were, thinking presumptuously that you just belong there, and by thinking that somehow your life of repeated, unconfessed sin and re- disregard for his law and absolute disregard for everything that he has done for us in Christ is going to somehow be overlooked. That his sympathy for you somehow turns into a lack of justice for you. Please do not for a moment consider leaving this place if you have not reconciled that very real tension. That his sympathy for you does not result in his callous disregard for the consequences of the sin that you would presumptuously bring into his presence. And may none of us be guilty of that sort of presumption today. And if that's never really settled in your heart and mind, oh, I pray today is the day when it does. And I say that not to condemn you or to judge you, But to give you the reverential fear of God that you are supposed to have, in fact, as you'll see later on in the book of Hebrews, it is a horrible, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's pastoral malpractice for me to just stand up here and glibly suggest that because he is so wonderful and so merciful and so sympathetic that you can sort of cruise along doing whatever you feel like doing, thinking that somehow in the end, it will just all work out. If you're under the weight of the conviction of sin today, may today be the day when you deal with that once and for all. And if there's any way that I can help you understand that more clearly, speak to me afterwards. Christian, Christ is the ultimate sympathizer. His experience lies far beyond the borders of our weakness and limitation. In fact, nothing we have known will inform him of anything. He's learned all there is to learn, notice it, by his suffering and by his temptation. And therefore, he has become the complete and the perfect intercessor for his children. When it says perfect here, it doesn't mean he was imperfect, as in lacking something. The word perfect means completed. He had, he had completed everything he needed to do. He had experienced every possible temptation to the degree far beyond anything anyone could experience. He had obeyed in every situation. He had completed all righteousness. He had done everything in the human, fallen, cursed, fleshly form that anybody would be called to do so that that act of righteousness could be given to you so that when you stand before him one day in glory, the only righteousness that is ever seen and evaluated and judged by a holy God is the act of righteousness of Christ imputed to you. That's an awesome truth. Amen? I don't want to bring anything when I show up before the throne of God one day. I don't want to bring anything. I don't want to offer anything. I don't want to be like, well, let me me show you what I did. I only want to plead someone else's righteousness. Put me behind him. Hide me behind him. Knowing that he invites me to come because he has already made the way possible. That's how he is to you if you're his child. He can relate better than any sinner can relate to you. In fact, he learned obedience not through sin, but through perfect obedience. He he learned it by doing it perfectly. As a mediator, he can stand and understand all the things that you cannot. In fact, he can understand you even because of who he is and what he has done, and especially in what he has endured meaning that it was a unique suffering to the full extent of temptation without the possibility of capitulating to it. I mean, consider the first Adam. You know, the first Adam, it cost him nothing to be obedient. He just had to live in the state that he was created. He chose to sin when everything in him was resisting sin. In his sinless perfection, when he was created, everything in him was, was resisting sin. He had to overcome the natural resistance to sin in order to sin. But on the other hand, it cost Christ everything to be obedient. He chose the will of God, even though everything in the incarnate flesh was tempting him to sin. In that act of obedience then, he reversed the very core of what the fall meant. Unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus yielded unwaveringly to the lordship of God. Not his will, but thine be done, even to the point of death on a cross. And friends, this is the great joy that we get to celebrate when we gather together. This is the good news. This is the good news. This is the blessing. He suffered and was humiliated every step of the way because of that very obedience. His whole life was one perpetual pressure cooker of temptation And His holiness only added to the stress of that because He was perfection imprisoned in fallen flesh. No one has ever been through such anguish, and therefore He can help us. He knows our needs. He feels the chill of this godless world, and yet He resisted it. He always hears my imperfections. He doesn't get turned off by them. He doesn't reject me. He has no contempt in His heart towards us who will bring to Him our needs and our groanings because He knows that what He has done has brought to full completion everything the Father has ordained for us since the time of our choosing. He's done it all. We come to to Him as, as these fallen creatures continually Repeatedly, sometimes intentionally going back to the very sins that he's rescued us from. And, and he doesn't get impatient with us and frustrated. He doesn't say you keep coming back over and over again with the same sins. He doesn't say, why are you back here again? This is the fourth time today. You know why we think like that? Because we have an accuser. Because Satan is there in your ear saying that to you. Really? You're back again with that same sin? How long do you think God is going to keep tolerating this? How long do you think he is going to keep forgiving that? When do you think it's going to end? When do you think he's going to finally say, enough is enough? You're going to show up and you're going to say you're sorry. And he's going to say, really, I don't believe you because you seem to keep going back and doing it over and over again. Those are the words that are constantly being pummeled into your head all the time by the evil one. And you respond, how? With this confession. You fight back with this confession. Let us therefore confess it. Let us therefore draw near. The way you fight back is by going into the presence of God in the face of the shouting of the evil and telling you not to. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Let us do that now. Father in heaven, we are in obedience to your instruction coming to you now in prayer, acknowledging our regular failures, acknowledging the shame that we feel about so often failing to do the very things we promise that we will do, the way that we feel shame and regret and yet so often run back to the very things that caused it. Lord, I ask that today as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, but we would be reminded of what this represents, that we would see that in it, that in it, we have a picture of the new covenant in your blood. In the ransom that you paid for all those who put their faith in you. That as we partake of it, it is not because we are in ourselves worthy, but because you have made us worthy. And because by doing so, we acknowledge that we could not do it ourselves. So may we receive these elements with great joy. For it is your name we pray. Amen.